the issue that we're going to look at is really greatness. And it's the issue that the disciples took up um, that last night they had with Jesus. And I think there's somebody, if we think about that, we consider great. It may not be someone we know, but there might be someone else throughout history or whatever that we consider great. Uh, there's always Abraham Lincoln. He's a guy who's great president. And we, but you look at his life, it's just one failure after another. And then, you know, you got Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he endured so much for a cause and even uh, was cut down by assassins. And uh, we remember them because they're great, but we like it because their greatness inspires us. And we all, deep down, want to be great. It may not be flashy great, but we want to be great parents. We want to be great at our careers. We want to be great um, spouses. And so... Uh, but one thing about greatness, the reason we love these people who are great is it's because they've endured something. They've gone through trials, and they triumphed over them. They overcame, and that's why we really love great people, because they have a great story. And like I mentioned, we're going to see in our text today, the issue of greatness comes up. What's greatness? And um, starting in verse 24, well, let's get an outline um, first. So like I mentioned earlier, we have the ugly dispute, which is what I call it. Then we'll see the rich reward, the heavy cost, and then the spiritual preparation. And so today we're going to talk about greatness and what does Jesus say about it. So if you would, look with me under this first section, the ugly dispute in verse 24. And it says this, And there arose a great dispute among them as to which one was, was regarded as the greatest. And the reason I call this the ugly dispute is it's not just a self-centered argument. It's not just a self-serving argument. It's kind of the, where the argument comes from. It's the last night that Jesus is with his disciples. We call it the Passover or Lord's Supper. Uh, if you look up just a couple of verses, he's just given the bread and done the cup. It says, this is my blood poured out for you in the new covenant. You know, I'm dying. And look at verse 21. It says, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So you can kind of picture it. They're all around the table, and Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. And then the disciples start talking like, oh, I wonder who the betrayer is. And then somehow, some way, the conversation turns into an argument. You can kind of see it unfolding with Peter being like, well, I know I'm not the betrayer because... I'm the greatest here. I'm Jesus' right-hand man. I'm part of the inner three of his circle. I'm Peter. And then you probably see at the end of the table, Thomas kind of mumble under his breath to, to Matthew, like, well, I seriously doubt that he is the greatest because I'm the greatest. And Matthew's probably like, no, you're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. And then this whole argument erupts out, and Jesus is probably just sitting at the table like, man, I really could probably use another three more years with these guys. <laughs> but this is what he says. He says, the kings of Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. So kind of two things here. These kings, these Gentile kings, have authority because they're kings, and they lord it over them. They, they abuse their power. They are great because they're abusing the power that they have. They are tyrannizing people. And another thing here is it says those who have authority are called benefactors. And we know from history that Gentile kings would often call themselves benefactors. And a benefactor is someone who acted on behalf of other people. But back then, and even sadly now, we see leaders who 
say they're acting on behalf of the people, but really they're using and exploiting them for their own personal promotion and whatever it is they're trying to become great in. And Jesus says this, it's not this way with you. This is not how it's going to be with you guys. And he says, verse 27, for who is great, or sorry, verse 26, but it's not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must be like the youngest and the leader like the servant. And in that culture, and you heard JB, I believe last Sunday talk about Esau and Jacob, the younger and the older. In the culture, the youngest did not serve the older, the eldest. It was, or the youngest did serve it. The old, eldest did not. And so Jesus doesn't really care about age. He doesn't care about culture. He cares about the heart, and we're going to see that as, it, as we move on. He says, for who is greater? So he's going to explain what he just said. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And the way this is written in the Greek, it implies a yes answer. Yes, of course, the one who's sitting at the table is greater than the guy walking around with the tray, like, you want more to drink? You know, we know, I mean, obviously, that the one sitting being served is the great one. But then Jesus says this, but I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus is saying, I'm the great one, but yet I'm the one serving. And so we ask, okay, Jesus is the example of what it means to be great. He wants us to be great. He's asking all of us here today to be great. So we look to Jesus for that example. What's the example? And if you want, you can flip there with me, but I'm just going to flip over to John. It's the same night, same meal, John 13, and I'll read a few verses. It says this, During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, and girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had girded himself. So two things about Jesus' garment that's going to help us. Back in that time, rabbis had trimmed garments with blue. And so anywhere they went, that signified he's a rabbi. Give him respect. Give him honor. So the, the trimmed blue garment signified honor and respect. But also, we know from John 19, 23, when he's on the cross and they're trying to divide up his clothes, we know that his garment was seamless, which that means really expensive. Because usually what they did was they took four pieces of cloth and they sewed them together, and that was your big kind of outer coat. But Jesus is seamless, which signifies expensive. It was riches. And we know from uh, Luke 8 that there was a group of really wealthy women that followed Jesus around, so maybe he got it from them. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But uh, what we do know is it was expensive. And what does he do? He got up from the table, and he laid aside the garment. He laid aside his position at the table. And about the towel, we have the towel. It's what servants wore. And then the second thing is he girded himself. He willingly became the servant. So Jesus gets up from the table that night. He lays aside his position as the host, the seat of honor. He lays it aside. He lays aside the position. He lays aside the riches. 
He lays aside the honor, the respect, and he takes on the form of a slave, of a house slave, and he serves his disciples. This is his example. I'm going to flip over real quick to Philippians. And you guys probably know this. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So do, do what Jesus did. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to hang on to. But he emptied himself of all the riches and glory that come with being God in heaven. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. That's a slave. Being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So Jesus is our example of greatness. He says, your idea, your concept that you're arguing about, your greatness is self-seeking, self-serving, self-centered. And that's not how it's going to be with you guys. Greatness, if you want to be great, you serve. And I'm the example. I'm the example of greatness. I get up from the table and I serve you. So, we've seen that the, the disciples are arguing, who's the greatest? Jesus corrects their self-seeking, self-centered idea of greatness, and he says, I'm the example. Uh, but to be honest, not having honor and glory is not all that appealing. Like, serving, that's not really that great. I mean, it is great, because Jesus says this, but really, deep down, we kind of like the attention. We like people knowing our names, we like going in public and getting kind of the recognition sometimes. So it's kind of hard. I think the disciples are thinking like, we were kind of set on being great, you know, like kings. And now you're saying we need to be like the youngest and serve. So this is kind of hard for us to grasp. It's kind of hard to be motivated. So I think this is why he goes into the rich reward. So we'll look at the rich reward, starting in verse 28. He says, and you are those who have stood by me in my trials. So he's saying, I'm among you as one who serves, and you have stood with me in my trials. And what that means literally is you've continued on with me. It's in perfect tense in the Greek. So it means you've continued with me, and you're even with me now. Even in my hard times, you are with me. And he says this, Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that's not a bad future gig to have. Um, and you might ask, okay, I, I want to serve Jesus. I want to be faithful. I want to have continued faithfulness. Uh, what am I going to get? I don't know. I don't know what our rich reward will be. I know it's not sitting on 12 thrones judging 12 tribes because that's already been dished out. But I don't know. I do know from Revelation that we are going to serve God forever, and I don't really know what that means. And to be honest, I've heard that my whole life, and every time I hear, I'm going to serve God forever, I kind of sink. Because I always pictured eternity like vacation, like not serving, like relaxing, maybe on a beach somewhere. I don't know. So I don't, I have a hard time when I hear preachers say, we're going to serve forever. It's like, man, you're a preacher, so you get excited about that, but I'm a youth pastor, I want to not serve. But anyways, <laughs> if, I can, if I can maybe try and illustrate it this way, 
When I was in eighth grade, eighth grade Eric, eighth grade Eric liked to golf. And eighth grade Eric went to the golf course every day, sun up, sun down. And that's where eighth grade Eric lived. There were high school golfers out there, and they were good. One guy in particular was really good. When he entered a golf tournament, he either won it or he was taking home some hardware. He's going to have some medals at the end of the day. He was a great golfer. One day, I don't know when it was, they asked me to start playing with them, so that was cool, you know. But I'm eighth grade Eric, so I'm acting really like, no big deal. And then another day, this one really good golfer, he says, hey, I'm playing in a big tournament at Karsten Creek. Will you be my caddy? And I was like, yeah, man, no problem, because I'm eighth grade Eric. I'm cool. I can do this. But inside, I'm like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to carry this guy's heavy bag, like 36 holes, in 100-degree July heat. This is going to be the best day of my life. <laughs> so we get there. First hole, I don't even remember if it's a par four, far, par five, whatever. But I know where I walk up to him. He walked a little bit ahead of me. I set the bag down. I'm just loving it. And uh, he looks over me and goes, so what do you think? I was like, what about, think about what? <laughs> and he said, what should I hit? Should I hit a lob wedge or a sand wedge? What should I do? I was like, and I'm thinking, you want, you want my opinion? You want me to tell you what to hit? And so I played it real cool. Like, oh, you should definitely hit the lob wedge. You know, just fly it. But for me, that was an amazing experience to look up to somebody and have him ask me to drag his bag through 100-degree weather, 36 holes. And if you've ever been to Karsten, it's like you're in the hills of somewhere. And it was, if you said, hey, you want to carry my bag in 100-degree weather? You'd be like, that sounds horrible. But it's not about what we do. It's about who we do it for. And I think that's the key when we talk about serving forever. Can you imagine the king of kings saying, hey, will you carry my bag? You'd be like, yeah, I'll carry both your bags. You know, I don't know why you have bags, but I'll carry them. So I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know what the rich reward will be for us, but I do know this, that based on how faithful we are in this life, if we continue to be faithful, we will be richly rewarded. And that's a good thing. And so the key is continued faithfulness. I think I was like, yeah, hey. Continued faithfulness results in greatness in the kingdom. All right, the next section. We've seen the disciples arguing about what's great, who's great, who's the greatest. Then we see Jesus correct their understanding. And then he commends them and said, because you have been faithful and continued in your faithfulness, there's a rich reward for you. And like I said, we probably won't have thrones, but... Uh, you can ask, why were they so richly rewarded? Why did they get to sit on thrones? And when I'd be like, well, they're the disciples. But another is, uh, I think Jesus knew what was around the corner for him. He knew what was in store that night he was to be betrayed. He knew that in the coming hours, they would be scared to death. He knew that they would be on the run. And he also knew in the coming days that they would be sent out across the world as his apostles, bringing his good news and that they would face tremendous persecution, stoning, left for dead, shipwrecked, abandoned, and even martyrdom. He knew that was in store. And so he tells them on the front end as encouragement, your reward is rich. And so their reward was rich because it came with a heavy cost. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have returned, or turned again, would strengthen your brothers. So he calls him Simon, Simon, and Heidi asked a great question we were talking about this. She goes, why is he calling Peter Simon? Why didn't he just call him Peter? He named him Peter. Why is he not calling him Peter? I was like, that's a good question. We should think about that. And the reason I think he did it is because Peter in Greek, we have that? Peter in Greek means rock or like bedrock. And um, his original name, Simon, means to hear or listen. And so he says, Simon, Simon, which is listen, listen. I've got something important to tell you. And he uses his name too, so that kind of is to grab his attention. And kind of equivalent in my life is when I was younger, if my mom wanted to get my attention, she'd be like, Eric Jason. And usually I was in trouble, but I was like, okay, what do you want to talk about? So she brought out the middle name, you know, and you know you need to listen up when the middle name comes out. So I guess that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's saying Simon, Simon, which has like a double meaning. Listen, listen. Um, but also he'd be like, my name's Peter now. And he says this. Oh, and something else we need to know is in verse 31, he says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. You can't see it in the English, but 31, the you is plural. It's Hamas. And so he's saying, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you like wheat. He's talking about the disciples. And then verse 32, it's, it, the you switches to the singular. He's talking about Simon now. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail and you when once you have turned again, you, Simon, will strengthen your brothers. And so he singles Simon out. And I think he did so because Simon really kind of was the leader of the group. He was a hothead, but he was kind of the person that they looked to. And something about Peter is he's the rock. And Jesus is trying to get his attention being like, tonight your faith is going to be shaken. In the coming weeks and even months, you will be shaken. And if Peter can be shaken, we can be shaken. Peter's the best of them, and even he is shaken. So even the best of us can be shaken. And when it says to be sifted like wheat, it literally says to be picked apart. Whoa, almost lost my notes. Satan is asking for permission to pick apart his disciples' faith. And something scary is that God allows them to do it because their faith that night starts being picked apart. But something that's comforting is that God allows him to do it. God is allowing. He's in control. He will not let anything come at us that we cannot handle. Now, we may fail, and that's usually because we're trying to tackle our problems in our own strength, in our own power. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's his strength, not our strength. So the comfort there is that God is the one saying, yes, you can. No, you can't. He's in control. So even the best of us have our faith shaken sometimes. And, you know, it's real easy to come here on Sunday morning. I'm guilty, number one guilty person of doing this because I don't know why, insecurities maybe, but I come here on a Sunday morning and people say, how you doing? I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. But a lot of times, I'm not good. A lot of times, my faith is kind of being tested. I'm going through something in my life, and I'm wondering, God, where are you? 
Um, but look what he says to Peter. Once you turn, strengthen your brothers. You know, we talk about grace, we teach grace, we love grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. God gets all the glory because of grace. But we need to be, and not saying that we're not, but Stillwater Bible needs to be a place that's safe. That if you are going through something, that if your faith is coming under attack and you are being shaken to your core, this should be a safe place where you come and when someone says, are you okay? You don't have to put on the facade and say, everything's good. Yeah, I got the joy of the Lord. You can just put your head on their shoulder and say, I need someone to pray for me. I don't know if I'm going to have a job next week. I don't know what is going on in my marriage. Everything I try comes back worse. I'm scared because my kid's a teenager and I don't know where they are, what they're doing half the time. So we're all going through stuff. And if Peter, the strongest of them, can be shaken, we can be shaken. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort others in any affliction with the same comfort that God has comforted us. And then it says this in verse 5. It says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant in Jesus Christ. We go through things. I don't know why we go through things sometimes. I kind of think God's crazy for doing some of the stuff he does and just not showing up and saving the day. But I do know this, that when it's all said and done, when the death settles, we look more like Jesus. And that's really what he wants. Because he's asking us to be great. And who is the great one? Jesus is great. And as we're going to see, Jesus' life was not a cakewalk. He endured trials just like we do. And he's the son of God. So, if even the best of us can be shaken, what are we to do? And I think that takes us to this last section, the spiritual preparation. Verse 35. Oh, actually, I skipped some verses. Just let me show you uh, Peter's response. Uh, verse 33. He said, But Lord, you, you know I'm ready to go to both prison and to death. That's cocky. That's overconfident in your own power, right? We don't want to be like Peter. Let's be real. We are sinful people. We can fall at any moment. 1 Corinthians ten twelve says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he does not fall. We are all capable of falling at any moment. Something tragic could happen today after church and our faith could be rattled to the very core. We need to realize that we are desperately 100% dependent on Jesus at all times, in the good and in the bad. And then look at verse 34. I think Jesus is kind of being sarcastic here. That's a Heidi translation note. She told me that. It says, and he said, I say to you, Peter. He broke out, Peter. I think he's being sarcastic. Okay, Peter, you think you can do this? You think you're the rock? You think you're rocky? Well, I'll tell you this. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, Mr. Mr. Rock. And then he goes into the spiritual preparation. He turns to the disciples and he says, When I sent you out without money belt, and without a bag, and without sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, No, we lack nothing. So they had nothing and they lacked nothing when they were sent out to do his ministry. 
But then he says this. But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Jesus is saying things are changing tonight. You had nothing and you were okay because I was with you, but I'm leaving tonight. You're on your own in the sense that he's not with them physically. Now, we know he sends the Holy Spirit and, and uh, they do the power through the Holy Spirit and that's how they're sent out. Acts 1.8. But when the shepherd is struck, what do the sheep do? They scatter. And so he's saying, get ready. You need to be prepared. And when it says, when I sent you out, that's referring back to Luke 9 and Luke 10 when he sent out the 12 and then in chapter, seven, or chapter 10 he sent out the 70. So he's saying, you've done this before and you're getting ready to go out again. But this time I'm not going to be here. And you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the world. So get ready. So there's a spiritual preparation that needs to take place. We have been commissioned, just like the disciples, to make disciples. We may not go all over the world, but we are here in Stillwater. We are, there's, the world comes to us. We have OSU. I run into people from all sorts of places here in town. I mean, God's made it easy on us. You ain't going to go. I'll bring them to you. Thank you. I don't like to travel. So we are to make disciples. And we know that we do it in his authority and his power. And so we need to be prepared because when we choose to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. The word persecuted just means be chased down. It may be from people on campus. It may be people at work or it may be spiritual. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 says, we're attacked from all sorts of angles in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. And he tells us to put on the armor of God, to be ready. And he lists there in that chapter what we are to do be spiritually prepared. He also has given us God's word. God's word trains us and equips us to be ready to handle whatever comes our way, whether it's from Satan or just a messed up world. We can be ready. And Jesus is saying, be ready. And he explains why they need to be ready in verse 37. For I tell you uh, that this which was written must be fulfilled. And he's quoting Isaiah 53. It's a famous one about the suffering servant. It says, and he was numbered with transgressors. What that literally says is he is counted as a lawbreaker. Jesus, the one who fulfills the law, knew no sin. They chase him down and they say he's the lawbreaker and they kill him. And a, a servant is not greater than his master is what Jesus tells them. And Jesus is saying, if they killed me, if they hate me, they're going to hate you and they're going to come after you. So if you got a coat, put it on. If you got money, Put it in your bag. If you got a suitcase, load it up. If you got no sword, sell a coat. Buy a sword. And he's not talking about physical preparations. He's using their past experience to talk about spiritual preparation. They need to be uniquely close to Jesus through the Holy Spirit as they do ministry. And so do all of us. But just like all of us, the disciples sometimes don't get it. They don't understand and in the last verse, he says, uh, they say to Jesus, Lord, look, we have two swords. Like, we don't need to sell two coats. We got two swords. And he says, it's enough. And they get up and they leave the dinner table. And there's, you know, 
two things that I want us to know. I think it's the next. We need to be prepared knowing that trials will come. We don't live in a safe world. Um, Sometimes we pretend, I know I did this for a long time, that bad things happen out there and I love Jesus so good things will happen to me, right? If I scratch your back, you'll scratch my back, God. That's not how it works. And that's not how God wants it to work because God knows the best way to make us look like the great one is to go through hard times, to go through trials, to have our faith shaken so that we can, it'll drive us to the throne of God where we find grace in our time of need, as Hebrews says. But it also encourages us, whoop, hey, go back. Knowing that there's a rich reward if we continue and persevere through the trials. I'm not talking about eternal life. You get eternal life because you persevere. We have eternal life because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sin in our place, rose again on the third day, conquering death. That's the good news message. And because he has conquered death and he is life, he gives us eternal life as a free gift. That's the offer. And anyone, whosoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have the gift of everlasting life. We don't persevere to get the life. We have it by faith. We persevere to get the rich reward. I hope every one of us, when that day comes and we stand before our Savior, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I hope that's for everyone. I hope that's the kind of disciples we are choosing to be today. I hope we're saying, I want to be great because Jesus is great. I will go through whatever hell I have to go through. I will do whatever I have to do. Like the song says, I will go out into the waves where my feet don't touch. I will do wherever, whatever you want. I'll go wherever you're calling me if that's what will make me great like my Savior. The next slide is kind of your application. The agony of greatness really is being conformed to the image of Jesus. And let me just kind of go on down because Jesus is our example, right? So on down in verse 41, he says, He, Jesus, withdrew from them a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying even more fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He's our example. The servant is not greater than the master. If Jesus went through hard times, we're going to go through hard times. But let's not be overconfident like Peter. Let's be prepared. Let's be ready. Let's be getting trained through the word. Let's be going to God fervently in prayer like Jesus is. And so when we are in agony, our response isn't to lash out at others. When we're in agony, our response isn't to run away from our problems. When we're in agony, we're driven to God in fervent prayer. James 1, 2, and 3 says, Consider all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces Endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be complete and mature, lacking nothing. You had nothing and you lack nothing because you had Jesus. Let's remember that as God is allowing us to go through difficult times when we wonder where in the world God is, 
why we're getting no relief. Sometimes we feel like we're drowning. Uh, let us remember that God won't give us anything we can't handle. And if we are desperately dependent on him and his strength, we will make it through. And there's a rich reward for us.